Hello, I'm Dawn Durham, and welcome to Patent Pod. We're here at the National Autism Conference talking to Dave Palmer. Dave, thanks for stopping by Patent Pod today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So I want to talk a little bit, when we think about some principles that really guide our instruction, um, particularly for students with autism, are there any principles of behavior that you feel are most important that we should be thinking about? Well, I'm not an expert in the field of autism the way most of the people you're interviewing or have interviewed today are, so I thought I would mention some things that are a little bit off the beaten track that other people might not have mentioned already. Please. Uh, so uh, one, thing, um, uh, one thing I wanted to emphasize was the need for effective reinforcers. When you work with an animal in, the, in a laboratory, um, when, when reinforcement occurs, there's an immediate effect on behavior because the animal hasn't, hasn't eaten in uh, you know, 12 hours or more, and, and so uh, the animal is uh, really excited about the arrival of food. Uh, and with, when working with a, uh, a child with autism or other uh, disabilities, or, or, or even just a, any, any child, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's often the case that, they're, that the, what you're choosing as a reinforcer is not quite as exciting as uh, uh, food for a hungry rat. So the reinforcement is a powerful tool, mm -hmm. provided that the reinforcer is uh, is in fact effective for that person at that time under those motivating conditions. Um, second, um, people get sick of eating the same potato chips over and over and over again pretty quickly. Uh, not that potato chips are necessarily what's used as a reinforcer, but I mean, uh, you, wanna, you, you want to check to make sure that your reinforcer isn't, um, uh, is still effective mm -hmm. uh, as, the, doing something. as the session yeah. goes on and on and on, um, uh, because something may be effective at 10 o'clock, but at 10.05, um, you're sick of hearing good job or you're, uh, or, or it, may, it may just be that there are more exciting things to do over there or up mm -hmm. there or down here or uh, in my own world. Um, and um, in the absence of effective reinforcement, a lot of procedures might look as though they're ineffective. Well, they will be ineffective if the reinforcer is ineffective. But it's not necessarily a problem with the analysis or the or the experiment or the, or the design, simply a failure to find an effective reinforcer. And I don't have any magic suggestions for this. You can't starve your kids, but, but <laughs> just uh, always keep, a, keep alert for the, for the possibility that your reinforcer, which seemed like a wonderful thing uh, in a choice task uh, when you started the, ex started the session, uh, maybe they're completely sick of it by the time they've had three or four stars or, mm -hmm. or, or stickers or gummy bears or whatever it may be. So when we think about positive reinforcement, it needs to be very personalized to the, to the student, but also be monitored so that yes. it, it continues to be exciting and, and be worth the effort. Yes, th th I think that's the point. Uh, keep on monitoring the effectiveness mm -hmm. of the reinforcer. And, and if it seems to have lost its, its zip. Uh, we need to find something else. Find something else or maybe terminate the session and, and come back at a later time. Um, rather than 
rather than blaming the design of the mm -hmm. procedure itself, which uh, of course there could be problems with the procedure, but but um, I, I think that people assume that a reinforcer is going to be a reinforcer more or less steadily throughout a session, and and that's um, uh, that's not likely to be true. Okay, then that's good to know going into the session, right? Is knowing that Absolutely. I need to be prepared to change it up to keep that zip, to yes. keep that excitement going, so that yes. the student or students I'm working with can mm. want to continue in that in that behavior. Right. So I think that's that's a key piece. Mm. You had written an article about atomic repertoires. So yes. if you could, for a, a moment here, help us all understand that concept, but more importantly, how does that apply to classroom instruction and classroom teaching? Well, I, th I think most people have a, a very intuitive notion of, of this, but the, 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 the concept um, of atomic repertoires is uh, that there are um, things that we learn in usually in very early childhood mm -hmm. that are little tiny pieces of behavior that are under the control of very specific kinds of environmental stimuli or, or, inter or social stimuli. So for example, the alphabet would be a perfect example. When I see the letter B, I can say B or I can say B. Uh, when, I, when I'm reading a text, I can sound out some unfamiliar word. So let's say it's some chemical compound, uh, bimethyl triethyl uh, oxalate or something. I can uh, uh, sort of sound out the, the word because I have an atomic, the, the atomic part is that they're little tiny pieces that have been assembled in a novel concatenation, uh, but I can respond on the very first trial correctly to this novel sequence of stimuli because I have a specific response to each one. So letters of the alphabet is, is one example, but imitative behavior would be another example. Um, children learn to imitate this, and they learn to imitate this, and they learn to imitate this, and they learn to imitate this, and, imitate this and so on. Um, but they do not have, um, they don't know how to imitate hopping on a pogo stick or mm -hmm. riding a unicycle or playing the violin. Uh, that is, um, it's not the case that people can just imitate anything. You have to have the component uh, imitative skills to imitate some complex uh, task. So for an example I like to use is this one. Um, mm -hmm. Can you imitate this? Well, you say, sure I can, but then which finger is actually moving? Is it my right hand, middle finger, is it my left hand thumb? Um, you have to actually look at it and break it down verbally to uh, imitate the behavior. You can't simply imitate it as some kind of innate ability. You have to have the uh, control by the specific visual stimuli controlling specific elements of behavior. Another example of um, uh, an atomic repertoire, would, let, me, let me go back to what atomic means. It means it's a little piece, mm -hmm. a little piece of behavior that can be re reliably evoked by a little piece of, of environment. So uh, we all, acquire, most of us acquire an echoic repertoire as children. That is, you say banana and I say banana. You say um, uh, some novel word I've never heard, uh, deoxytrimethyloxalate, uh, and I can repeat it, provided it's not too long, mm -hmm. uh, even though I've never said the word before, because I have that m 
that a tiny pieces that you're able to pull apart. Yes, and, yes. And you, you, you provide, you assemble the stimuli in a particular sequence, and I can uh, deliver the response in that same sequence because I have a one-to-one -one relationship to mm -hmm. all the elements of the, of the stimulus. Now, what the relevance of this, of this is that most human behavior is not shaped. That is, we don't, uh, we don't learn, uh, for example, you could say the capital of Pennsylvania is... Harrisburg. Harrisburg, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, s um, now I know what the capital of Pennsylvania is. It's Harrisburg. But if you wanted to shape that behavior, you would, s you would sort of wait around for me to go, uh, boo da dee da huh. And as soon as I said, ha, you say, yeah, 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 more ha. I go, ha, 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 ha. He, ha, he, ha, hu, ha, oh. Uh, and whenever I said ha, ha, whenever I say ha, you say good, 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 Palmer. Uh, and then ha, 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 hab, hack, had, hair. Yes! Uh, you'd have to shape up all the little elements of this thing. It would take you forever. It would mm -hmm. take you all day long to get me to say Harrisburg through shaping. But simply by modeling it, bingo, there it is in a single trial. In most human behaviors of this sort, where it's acquired on the first trial because the, because the teacher or the natural environment has arranged a permutation of molecular stimuli to evoke the same permutation of molecular responses, and you get the behavior right away, and then it can be reinforced, and we can move on. I now know that the capital of Pennsylvania is Harrisburg. Uh, so. Uh, uh, it's a huge advance over shaping, and yet shaping is what we learn in the textbooks. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, we all know intuitively and and experientially that if you want a kid to say something, you model it. But um, what the atomic repertoire idea is is sort of a conceptualization of what exactly the elements are. And so you want to make sure that the child has all of those little elements under the control of all these specific antecedents uh, in order to get that permutation of behavior. So when we're thinking about a classroom instruction or a classroom setting, I'm getting more student response. I'm getting more, um, eliciting more response and active response from my students. For, instead of shaping and taking, as you said, all day to get to the word Harrisburg, but providing an environment and information and stimuli to get each of these little individual pieces so that the response is quicker, it's more immediate, and we can continue on and get into more instruction versus kind of carrying it out all day. Am I correct, Am I correct in understanding this? Yes, uh, but of course, the, the, uh, most people learn these atomic repertoires very, very early, sort mm -hmm. of offline. That is not in the class. Well, we do learn, we learn the alphabet perhaps mm -hmm. in the classroom. But let's take something like um, uh, sight reading of music. Now, this is something that a lot of people can't do. Well, there is a one-to-one -one relationship between what's on the musical staff and the note on the piano. Mm -hmm. and uh, if you want a child to play the piano, you can teach, if, they want, if you want the child to play the Moonlight Sonata, you can say, okay, put this finger here, this finger here, uh, and you can get the child to play the notes, but if you can teach the child that this note means that key, and mm. this note means that key, then you can give the child an infinite Anything. number yeah. of musical scores, and the child may not be concert piano quality, but <laughs> the child can pick out the tune um, using the, um, the 
stimuli on the page. That one-to-one -one aspect. That one-to-one -one mm -hmm. aspect is what, what we mean by an atomic repertoire. Atomic is just means that it's a, it's, a little, it's a little tiny unit of behavior that can be combined with other units of behavior to give you something, a, a bigger unit of to behavior. To build on. Yeah, like Harrisburg is the combination of <laughs> and so um, uh, rather than having to shape up each one of the little little elements, you can present the permutation as a string, and I can respond um, in in on the, on the first trial. And in having those atomic <coughs> pieces, then I could I could generalize those or transfer those pieces to other stimuli that might have that small individual piece put over oh, here, oh right? Yes, I mean, that would be oh, exactly. the transferability of it. Right, right. Uh, that is, it's, it's, it's almost infinitely mm -hmm. permutable. That is, you can, you can get me to say Harrisburg, you can get me to say Moscow or, or London or Paris or, or, or any word you like. Any word that can be pronounced in the English language or whatever language we're mm -hmm. speaking in uh, using this concatenation of letters. That is, anything you can, anything you can echo um, you'll be able to say essentially an unlimited number of novel things correctly or close, close to. enough <laughs> to correctly to get reinforcement right away without having to shape the behavior. So a huge economy hmm. in time, teaching time. Of course, people know this intuitively without knowing anything about the term atomic repertoire. They People have an intuitive understanding mm -hmm. of this. It's just a, it's just a way of analyzing, um, analyzing that aspect of, of what we're doing. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about some some of the work that you've done, kind of away from the conference. But here at the conference, you're talking about um, analysis of logic and math in relationship to verbal behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's that's your kind of your topic here while you're here at the conference. Can you share with us some core aspects of analysis um, of verbal behavior that allow it to be useful across many fields of inquiry? Yes. Okay. Well, um, uh, I made some notes to myself, and yeah, I just please. wanted to uh, refer to them before I, so I don't get off on a tangent. <laughs> ah, okay, so uh, uh, possibly the, m well, one of the many important things about verbal behavior is that a speaker is also a listener. That is, assuming mm -hmm. the person has normal hearing um, uh, and normal articulation, which is most of us, it, of course we have to, make special arrangements for people who have, have different kinds of deficits. But, but uh, most people hear themselves speak as they speak. Uh, and uh, when you speak, I speak along with you. Uh, that may not seem as though that's happening, but in fact it is happening. Uh, that is, uh, not if I'm not paying attention to you, if I'm sort of s filing my nails and saying, oh, da da da, uh, when is lunch? And you're talking away about Harrisburg. Um, and a minute later you say, what did Don talk about? I'll say, gosh, I have no idea. But if I'm listening, what listening means is to behave along with the speaker. And usually that means to speak along with the speaker. There are also other discriminative responses we engage in. But that, that, um, the fact that we uh, both speak and listen uh, is an extremely important uh, concept. Um, and second, speech easily recedes to the covert level and is still effective. That is, I can say to myself, okay, uh, 12 times 12 is 144, 144 minus 16 is uh, 128, and so on. That is, I can do that kind of stuff out loud, or it's essentially equally effective, maybe not quite as effective, if I do it 
covertly, which means that I have a, um, this ability to sort of preserve verbal behavior mm -hmm. over long periods of time. Um, I can, uh, so I can, I can rehearse something. If you say, uh, oh, the uh, phone number for the patent office is uh, 869-2304, um, uh, I'll comp you know, forget it immediately unless I say 869 and eventually I get to the phone and I... You write I, it down. I, mm -hmm. I, I, or, or yes, I write it down. That would be even better. An atomic repertoire. <laughs> atomic repertoire of writing is another example. Uh, so, um, so that uh, that ability to um, preserve the stimulus, if you will, mm -hmm. more or less indefinitely, as, co as covert rehearsals is very important. Um, and um, another extremely important thing concept is that of automatic reinforcement through matching, or what I call parity. Uh, that is. Um, uh, if you say Harris, Harrisburg and I say Harrisville, I can hear that I haven't said it quite right. Um, and uh, so I say, what, what was it again? You say Harrisburg and now I say Harrisburg and I say, ah, I've got it. That is, it's automatically reinforcing when I can detect that what I said was what you said. Mm -hmm. And it's automatically punishing when I detect that I have misspoken what you There's said. There's mismatch there. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not common for there to be a mismatch when there are common English words that we, where we both share a vocabulary. But if you're a speaker of Serbo-Croatian and you say the Serbo-Croatian word for watermelon is blah 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 I'll have a heck of a time <laughs> uh, uh, because my I, I don't have the right uh, vocal repertoire for imitating, I don't have the atomic repertoire for imitating that, and I can detect that I'm wrong, and if I keep at it, I can perhaps detect when I'm right. So that automatic, sh that um, automatic reinforcement permits automatic shaping of my behavior without the need for um, a parent to pat me on the back every mm -hmm. time I've gotten a little bit closer. So children uh, learn a lot of verbal behavior simply by trying to and successfully matching the behavior of adults or, mm -hmm. or, or peers or big brothers and so on. So I think, I think having a, a good base knowledge of what are the core pieces that verbal behavior helps in, you know, not just the classroom setting, but as you said, a parent setting or just understanding um, behavior in general. So I think that's, mm -hmm. that's the key pieces. I wanna just jump a little bit to at Patent Pod, we really, we, our goal is to inspire educational growth. And mm -hmm. we want folks out there who are viewing or listening to this episode to really think and be inspired to grow professionally. Mm -hmm. um, and we ask this of all of our guests. So I'm excited, Dave, that you're able to, to offer this advice too. What advice might you have to those folks who are listening or viewing this episode for them? Well, I think the most important thing someone can do to grow professionally is to um, do what you can to learn from other people. That is, mm. uh, uh, if, you, if you imagine someone trying to learn some skill like Robinson Crusoe on an island all by yourself, um, you have to have all the lucky breaks to learn all the tricks of the trade. 
Um, and it might take you your entire lifetime to, to finally learn, doggone, I should have been monitoring the effectiveness of the reinforcer uh, over time. Uh, uh, so um, going to meetings like the patent conferences is an mm -hmm. excellent uh, thing to do for someone who's trying to improve his or her skills because you get exposed to lots and lots and lots of people who are all uh, working on roughly the same kinds of problems, all of whom have had a little lucky break mm -hmm. or insight or, or solved some thorny little problem. Um, and the spread of that uh, uh, knowledge and expertise at a, at a meeting like this is, uh, is very, very great. Um, and when you, when you don't take advantage of meetings like this, you are more or less forced back onto textbooks mm -hmm. and uh, technical articles in the literature, plus your own experience and your colleagues. Of course, your colleagues can be fabulously helpful, but um, it's simply a matter of uh, drawing from a larger pool. The larger the pool of expertise you can draw on, the more effective you will be. And so I, I think, and I think conferences, especially conferences that are devoted to the um, domain in which you work, are as opposed to something that's just more general. Mm -hmm. um, like too broad. Yeah, too, too broad. Educational conferences would be too broad. Or, uh, even, a, even the national meetings of the applied, I mean, of the Association of Behavior Analysis it would, be, uh, would be quite broad. This conference is, is more fo focused. But, uh, but anyway, the point is that um, drawing from a pool of, 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 um, of experts or just colleagues uh, is the surest way to improve one's skills. Um, I would kind of um, look, uh, look askance at reading the technical literature. Mm -hmm. That is, you might think, well, I should be reading the journals every day. Well, there's a lot of stuff that's published. Uh, you, could, you could spend your entire life mm. reading half of the stuff that's published every year. And a lot of it wouldn't be that, uh, some of it would not be that helpful to you. What you want to do is find those things that are uh, really best for yourself. And, and uh, I don't know that reading technical articles kind of blindly is, a, is an efficient way of getting what you need to know. I think that's why going to a meeting where you can approach a speaker after the talk and say, what about this little problem? And then can direct you s straight to a paper that might be relevant or give you face-to-face -face advice that would be very relevant. So I, uh, I guess in one word I would say, go to patent meetings. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we certainly think patent is a pretty yeah. amazing <laughs> place to find that, but pull, you know, pulling from your pool of experts, I think, I think you, you know, that's really the key crux of it is, is going to places like the National Autism Conference, right. um, going to your patent resources, going to your immediate re unit resources, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and really using them as your go-to source because right. they have access or can open the world or the doors for you to people like yourself and, and to those that we've spoken with today and that are presenting here at the Autism Conference. So I think mm -hmm. that's a good piece to, to be thinking about and I appreciate that advice from you and we're glad that you're here at the National Autism Conference. We know that everyone attending um, and those who are live streaming and will be checking out recorded sessions will also be um, gaining some knowledge from your, your talks today. So thank you so much for joining well, Patent Pod. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you to all of you in the field. You inspire educational growth in your students every day. A special thank you to John Ragsdale for producing this podcast. We'll see you next time on Patent Pod.